Okay, this morning we are in Hebrews 10 again, and we begin this morning on verse 23. We're having a series of exhortations, verses 22, 23, 24. If you weren't here last week, it says, let us draw near, verse 23, 22. Let us hold fast, verse 23. Let us consider how, verse 24. So, there are three exhortations that begin with this let us phrase. The one we're on this morning, verse 23, says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I think I mentioned last week that we have in these three verses also faith, hope, and love. The, the triad of uh, Christian Virtues that you hear elsewhere, faith, hope, and love. So this one is about hope. And so now we have also the concept of confession, which we've heard earlier in Hebrews, the confession of the Christian. Um, what's a confession? Okay, it's what confess Christ would be our confession. Yeah, what we say, what we believe, and ultimately what we live. In the in the Greek, the word means to say the same thing as homologia. But it also um, the Christian confession has to do with the person and work of Christ, and the basis of our hope being His finished work, which we've been discussing quite a bit in Hebrews, and it's the reason we can draw near to God is because we have a hope that, that we have through the gospel that gives us strength and stability no matter what happens. And that's why it says without um, wavering. That phrase wavering or the term wavering means to not to be swerved to one side, swerved to one side or another. So without wavering means that we're not going to the right or the left. We're not shaken. We're not... Uh, Stopped, but we stay on track with the Lord because of Him, it says, who promised. So, the confession of our unwavering hope is grounded in the person of work of Christ Himself and His nature, which is He is faithful, and His promises, which are great and which are many. So, we have these great precious promises that we cling to because we believe the gospel is true. So that's our gospel hope. Uh, I had a citation here, and then we're going to look up some cross-references. Yeah, we, One of them is Hebrews uh, 6. Uh, Pat, could you look up Hebrews 6, 18 and 19? And then I'm going to read this here from William Lane. Both in 6.18 and 10.23, the hope to which the writer refers is an objective reality related to the priestly activity of Jesus. In Hebrews, the term hope always describes the objective content of hope consisting of present and future salvation. Christ's provision of access to the heavenly sanctuary, Hebrews 10.19-20, is the basis of this hope because we know we have this 
high priest who's there in the presence of God. Then he says, accordingly, to hold fast to the hope we profess is to maintain a firm confidence in the objective gift of salvation God has extended to the community on the basis of Christ's priestly sacrifice. What does it say in Hebrews 6, 18 and 19? So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Wow, that's a good passage. The hope we have is an anchor for the soul. We certainly need that, don't we? Amen. Amen. Yes? What Lane is saying is that hope is primarily not a feeling. It's based on objective truth. It's an understanding that's based on truth, not a feeling. I just was thinking in some of the the uh, charismatic circles that I was involved with, they would the service would be very animated and uh, more like a pep-type pep rally with the music and that preaching and uh, very similar to a, a pep rally or a basketball game or something. I don't know if you're in college where they try to stir up all your hope but we're going to pound these guys. <laughs> and it was much more uh, an emotional trying to work up an emotional hope yeah. and beat them. As opposed to here, it's the antithesis or a different kind. It's not primarily an emotion. It's a hope founded on a fact that we know that Christ has resurrected from the dead. And therefore, even though we feel hopeless, we have hope. Yeah, that passage that Pat read talks about this anchor within the veil. We don't have to feel hope. <laughs> we have hope just because yeah. we do. And the more these truths are taught, preached, reiterated, read thought about, encouraged, uh, the stronger that hope becomes. And I think the reason people end up with just the emotional version that comes and goes is they're not given the truth, the reality of it. I remember in the 80s, in the early 80s, I started correcting the health and wealth gospel. I did some teaching that um, told people that this going off to the... It wasn't Benny Hinn back then who was, you know... (laughs) Who was the health, the, you know, whoever these tra- traveling preachers were, the people would run to the meetings hoping that maybe something would happen. And so I started correcting that error. And, and somebody that didn't like my teaching came and said, well, you're taking away my hope. And, and I thought that was interesting that this person's hope was based on maybe I'm going to go to one of these meetings and find a healing. Or maybe I'm going to go to... A, get a breakthrough and if the evangelist prays for me or if I have an experience. So their hope was based on a shaky ground of some temporal benefit that maybe they could get. But this hope that we're talking about is not a hope that maybe I'll have a financial breakthrough. Maybe I'll get a healing. Maybe I'll get emotional uplift temporarily because I went to an exciting meeting. But this hope is sure, it's certain, it's eternal, it's unmoving, it's unwavering. And that hope that the people look for by running to these meetings is fleeting. They go, they, they keep going back, but they don't get it. And uh, it's, it's, it's sad in some ways. It's almost like the, yeah. I was at a trade show in Las Vegas. I was in Las Vegas last week. And the whole town is run by hope. 
Does he hope when you put that little quarter or dollar bill <laughs> in there and you pull this thing, you're hoping that you're going to get rich? It's, and it's a stupid hope because you look at the odds, you're not going to. <laughs> People have a misguided hope to, to cash in on something, and we have exactly the opposite. We have a hope that's founded in sure. And even though, think about it, have odds. It's obviously you cannot win because that's, the house always wins. But they have hope. They, still have hope. they keep pulling the lever. Eh? <laughs> yes. Uh. I have a little article here. It's always interesting when you talk about hope. We have hope in the scriptures. Well, the latest when you talk about gambling, the devil always says you're going to win. You know, in that little voice, and you never do. He's a liar. But it says here, <laughs> this is a big Catholic church. In Hastings, Liz Van Seaton, thousands of membership, and, and he goes on to mention this priest. Missionary travels of John Paul II continue. Now listen to what he says. In, if the pastoral letter is opening our eyes to a new way of seeing, then I thought a new way would, would also have to be found in putting these words into the practice. The spirit tree is becoming our glasses through which St. Elizabeth Ann Seaton Parish is now seeing seeking to put in the gospel message into practice. Our spirit tree, about eight feet tall and eight feet in circumference, stands near the shore of our baptismal font. Presently, there are thousands of ribbons tied to the tree. And then he goes on to say, Those who go to Holy Mass receive the body of Christ. No denominational program or spirituality can offer more than what Jesus simply gives to us, his life. Those who receive his body, are able to work these miracles. An example of one of these miracles is, following Mass one weekend, a brother relieved his sister who was washing dishes after supper. He said, I'll do them for you. How is such a miracle possible within family life? The brother, the brother must have received the body of Christ and so acted as his body, filled with the Holy Spirit of love and generosity. In the end, he says, while some may doubt God's presence in the world, it's hard to argue with these miracles like this. If you come to St. Elizabeth and Satan, I invite you to visit the spirit tree. And like Moses, hear God speaking from the burning bush. What blasphemy? This is the kind of religious garbage that's going on today. Forget now that. Now, what, they got a tree? Yeah, a spirit tree that they put these ribbons on. Okay. And, you know, at least the devil's out front. He's going to take your money. But these religious leaders, they're the... the Biggest wolves in sheep's clothing, offering you this false hope. And these people really are, because I was born and raised a Catholic, loving the Lord, wanting soul to know Jesus Christ, and now not telling me. Now they're offering you a spirit tree. What next? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anything but the gospel. Anything but the gospel. And that's what you just said. We have the hope. Yeah. I like that illustration uh, from the pat from uh, Hebrews six about the anchor within the veil. But you see, people want something they can see; they want something tangible. Jesus is in heaven; they can't see him. But they can see a tree. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, I got some more passages. Um, Edith, could you look up Hebrews four fourteen and Noel one Corinthians one eight and nine. And Diane, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. And Aleth, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. And Norm, Titus 1.2. And Cladorus, um, Revelation 3.11. Yes? The hope that we're talking about here is more of an insurance. 
assurance, assurance. than it is a hope. Because I was just keep thinking about what you were saying, what the biggest thing. That's a hope. And, and, and what we know as hope. And, and yeah. this, isn't, this, this wouldn't even be comparable to the, to, to the, to the same hope. Well, what you're pointing out, Troy, is based on the fact that our English use of the word hope is somewhat different than what the Greek meaning in the Bible is. So we say hope, we sort of say, I hope so. Yeah. Are you going to get that, that promotion? Well, I hope so. <laughs> we hope that our team's going to win and we hope a lot of nice things are going to happen. But the biblical idea of hope is this strong anchor of assurance. It's, it's solid, it's sure, it's certain. So, Paul, for example, thinking about the opposite, Paul says that if Christ is not raised, then we have no hope. But if He is raised from the dead and we're trusting His finished work, then our hope is certain. Amen. So that's, so that's, that's a, but that's a good point. We've got to know the range of meaning. And in, in the Greek, it's a strong, solid word. Okay, the first cross reference is uh, Hebrews 4.14. Okay, so because because of Christ having passed through the heavens, let us hold fast our confession. Now remember in the first century, in fact the first three hundred years of the church, this confession was not an idle thing or a small thing. People died for it. In the Roman persecutions, they would take people and say, if you deny Christ, we'll let you go. If you confess Him, we're going to kill you. Amen. And the Christians would not give up their confession. Amen. So this was not some positive confession where you know people are sick and they confess that they're not. Uh, this was confessing their ultimate hope and trust in Christ as the Lord and Savior who's raised from the dead. So holding fast. They were looking for health and wealth. No, they were looking for <laughs> salvation. <laughs> the fact, it says, well, we haven't got that far, but earlier, later in Hebrews 10, it says, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. They were, they were, these early Christians were willing to lose everything, but they wouldn't give up their confession of Christ. Uh, and it was it was necessary, and it is it's necessary for us yes, that we hold our confession. And our confession isn't about us. It's not about ourselves. It's not about the things we dream about in this world. It's about our eternal hope based on the finished work of Christ. Okay, um, Noel, 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Okay, so there is the God who is faithful. That's, that same phrase is found in Hebrews 10, 23. So... God's faithfulness is our anchor of assurance. Amen. We don't trust ourselves, do we? Not one I would. <laughs> 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 no, you trust in self. That's why uh, this worldly wisdom is so foolish. Did I, did you see in the Twin City Christian that some pastor wrote up a rebuttal to Rick Warren, uh, who, who published that thing in the Ladies Home Journal? Good for him. Good for him. Amen. But you know, the stupidest thing about this Rick Warren wisdom is he says in there that we should believe in ourselves. Now talk about a reversal of the biblical concept. The Bible says that we should believe in God, but he even goes so far as says God believes in you. No, God doesn't believe in me. No. 
<laughs> he believes I'm a sinner. And that, that's the opposite. Remember when Jesus, uh, in John, it says that Jesus knew all men. He was not committing himself to men because he knew all men because he knows what is in man. Yes, amen. I believe God knows what's in us, but it is, but it's, it's, God is the object of faith. So, worldly wisdom is a total reversal of the wisdom of God's word. And you continue in these advice columns and stuff like that. You hear people say, well, you got to believe in yourself. Well, how are you going to have hope by believing in yourself? Yeah, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. That's what Paul believed. Yes. I think that statement about Rick Warren telling us that we should believe in ourselves, that is so blatantly anti-biblical. It's just a sign on how sick the church is. They don't know. Uh, I, yeah, I'm going to talk about that. My sermon is based today on Second Thessalonians, and we're going to talk about whether we love the truth or not is going to determine our eternal destiny. Amen. And I'm very, very alarmed about trends in the church because I've got to wonder how much people love the truth. And and if popularity and success is more important than the truth, then I think that we're in serious jeopardy. And we think that somehow we would never sign up for Antichrist, you know. He's the bad guy. But the way I see things going, there's going to be a lot of professing Christians who wouldn't recognize Antichrist because they're listening to his message already. They're waiting in line to go to the meeting. Um, Antichrist is going to have a big congregation. Did you know that? Okay. Um, The next one is 1 Thessalonians 5.24. <laughs> that's a that's a good that's a good hope there. Faithful is he who called you; he will also bring it to pass. Now, remember, beloved, that the term "called" in the New Testament is used in two different ways. Did you know that? Well, all right, let me go over it again. Then there's two, and, and you have to make this distinction, otherwise the passage just makes no sense. Yeah, many are called, few are chosen. So, the, in one type of verse, in certain verses, the word called talks about the universal call. And that goes out to everybody. When, when it says God is calling, commanding, literally, all men everywhere to repent, that's universal. Amen. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That's universal. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let, you know, universal. That's all. But when it says... Faithful is he who called you will also do it. That's talking about what, what we call the effectual call. Because it says in Romans 8 that all the called are justified. Amen. And all the justified are glorified. Now that can't mean universally, otherwise everybody would be universalism. Okay, so the only way to understand the Bible is to, when you see the term called, decide where it's talking about those who have actually responded to the gospel. Effectually called, or whether it's talking about the universal call, that goes out to everybody. Now, the, I'm seeing the passage that Diane read is talking about that effectual call. And so, when it says, faithful is he who called you, who will also do it, that would be a very good um, cross-reference to Romans 8, 29, and 30. Where it says, the called are justified and the justified are glorified. Amen. So, if God called you out of the world through the gospel and you respond in faith that God will do what He said. He will finish His work. He will, it may be painful. He will discipline us. Yes, amen. He promises it will be 
Yeah, it will be painful. We he'll he'll do anything. I mean, even even just bringing us through who knows what. But God, in His mercy and love, is going to do it. Amen. And so that's why we have this unwavering hope. It's because of God's promises and His faithfulness and His love and His uh, uh, commitment to bring us to glory. Okay, the next cross-reference was 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. The Lord is faithful and what does it say He will? Strengthen and protect you Amen. from the evil one. Good. Amen. <laughs> uh, Titus 1 and verse 2, Norm. <laughs> this is pretty certain, isn't it? God cannot lie and He promised it before time began. And then Revelation 3.11. That's the Lord Jesus who says that. Behold, I come quickly. Are you ready? Yes, we're ready. We're saved. We're ready. You're saved. You're ready. Better have the right garments on. That's right. Amen. Remember, there's going to be a big wedding feast, and if you show up in the wrong garments, what happens? Yeah. Oil in the lamp. <laughs> you better have oil in the lamp and the right garments on. <laughs> the right garments are the righteousness of Christ. The wrong one are our filthy rags, our own righteousness. Okay, just in case you didn't know the answer to that. <laughs> Okay, so that is uh, holding past our confession, the second of the three exhortations. Let's go to the third one, Hebrews 10.24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So the, the second exhortation had to do with what God has done in the rock-solid foundation of our hope and our faith. The third exhortation has to do with our responsibility to help one another in this. God has means. It's important to realize. Because um, if we want all the passages in the Bible to make sense, we need to realize that there are certain things, as we were talking about, God certainly will perfect His work and He will bring us to glory. But don't forget that God has means. And, and those means ought not to be neglected. People say, well, if it's a certain thing, then why should I pray? Why should I bother uh, Doing anything. Why should I go to church? Why should I serve God? Why should I listen to the Word? Why should I, um, you know, whatever you want to fill in the blank. Um, well, for one thing, if that's the way you're thinking, maybe you aren't saved. You know, if you, if you really know the Lord, you would have a hunger in your heart for His means. And you wouldn't even say, why should I pray? Because it'd be your delight to pray. Amen. Yeah, <laughs> I I heard uh, when I was a young man in Bible college, uh, I heard a story from this evangelist uh, that had come through to preach there at uh, at North Central Bible College, and he he talked about this person who came up after his sermon and says, um, <clears throat> was asking him how sinful he could get and still be saved, <laughs> and the evangelist says, "I'm telling you, you're already in big trouble. <laughs> you are asking the wrong question." <laughs> I mean, the, the, the redeemed are asking, how can I escape my sin? Amen. The non-redeemed are thinking, gee, what can I get by with? Uh, you know, maybe I'll sneak through. <laughs> I think to give an answer to some of those people to say, you know, why do I have to do this and why do I have to do this if it's all taken care of, is because if you don't, if you're out there 
making bad decisions in life, ungodly decisions in life, you're going to pay the consequence for that. And the Lord doesn't want that to happen even to a saved person. That's true. There are consequences, even for a Christian. And notice the fact that the Bible doesn't see a contradiction where we maybe we think we do. For example, this very chapter that gives us this unwavering, certain hope, and well, even chapter 6 which says the hope that we have, which is the anchor of the soul, a hope that goes within the veil. The same chapters have stern warnings against apostasy. Because look at here, we're, I don't know if we'll get this far, but look at Hebrews 10.26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no, no longer a sacrifice for sins. So right in the same chapter, it says we have an unwavering hope that we confess and we better not go on sinning willfully because if we do, there'll be no sacrifice for our sins. They're both true. And the best way to not go into theological error is to preach the whole Bible. Amen. Because whatever our tendency that would be in error will get corrected if we keep going. And that's why I don't believe in topical preaching except for on rare occasions. Because you skip the things you don't like. And you could preach for 35 years and skip the things you don't like, and those things you don't like are probably what you need to hear. Amen. So if you go through the whole thing, you'll be forced to face the verses that don't fit your theology. And maybe your theology gets straightened out. <laughs> yes. I, I'm not, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard from, I've never been a Catholic. I grew up Methodist, and we had our own problems. But um, uh, isn't the sermon typically very, very short? And I think the reason for that has to do with the theological underpinnings, which is believing in sacraments that are going to be the... The key thing is that you get the sacraments. And so when you're... They call it sacerdotalism. Okay? Yeah. But he tends towards that anyway, whether it's the health and wealth, they're going to talk about grace or tribulations that God sends you. And the ascetics aren't going to talk about the health and wealth. There's a whole, pretty much any flavor of Christianity has its own tendencies, including us. Yeah, yeah right. Should, should really warn us because there's verses I like less than other verses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically the ones that correct me. <laughs> uh, Kathy, and then, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that, that it was basically either, at the very least, neglected. Really? Yeah, you know, I've heard that, but I get conflicting reports because I wrote that article called The Gospel for Roman Catholics when I was trying to encourage people to give it to their Catholic friends so they could understand. And a lot of it was based on Hebrews. Hebrews says Jesus Christ is our high priest and he's entered within the veil and and our hope is that we can go directly to God through Christ, not through all these intermediaries. And I had some conservative Catholics take me to task and, and say, well, no, we always, what makes you think we don't already believe that? And they were, they, were, they were saying, we believe that. We believe in reading the Bible. We believe in these things. So why do you say we don't? Well, um, maybe they do. Maybe these few tiny remnant do. But the masses of people, the thousands and thousands and millions... Don't, are going through the motions and they, they, don't, they don't know the gospel and they don't know the work of Christ. But it's tricky because I remember my first wife took Catholic instruction. She was a Baptist. First of all, I was a lost Catholic. She was a lost Baptist. And she took Catholic instructions to become a Catholic. And I knew something was wrong because I was lost. Because I said, well, you're a Protestant. You know, that's all I understood. Is why would you uh, 
do something like that. And I says, this is interesting to me. What's he telling you? And he says, well, we believe that. We believe that. Jesus, all this stuff, like you said, plus. Yeah. Plus. plus. More. Plus. <laughs> the plus is plus. where you get into we trouble. Jesus died, raised, and all that stuff. We believe it. But we got more than you guys got with the gospel. We got plus. Well, you know what I said? That's to, not the gospel. You know what, that, what I said to that, the one of the guys that was criticizing my article? I said, well, if you believe these things, why are you mad I'm writing them to Catholics? I should be just re- then all you're saying is I'm reinforcing what you believe, so why you got a problem with that? Well, you're suggesting we don't. I said, well, that's where we went with that. That's where we went with that discussion. All right, let's get to our passage. Let's consider how, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So, um, we need, we need one another, don't we? Yeah, we pray together. We open the scriptures together. We have the means of grace. Now, it's not everybody likes that phrase, but we've explained it here as the Word of God, uh, uh, Christian communion, our prayers together. Those are means that God uses that are very biblical. And these things should be um, a high priority. You know, the next passage, which I'll. Well, I got some cross references, but just to tie it all together, not forsaking our own assembling together. So, the assembling together is necessary if we're going to stimulate one, one another to love and good deeds. Right? Um, so, recognizing that we are sinners and we need grace and we need the gospel and we need the Lord, we have reason to be together to help one another, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to pray for one another, and to be there for one another in our times of need. And there's a huge value to that. And you know, it gets lost in an urban world so easily. And I think the church is a refuge for us where we have real relationships and and people that are going to be there when we need them. And uh, sadly, I think that the whole concept of fellowship, as it's understood in the Bible, gets lost in the professionalized religious world out there where you have religious consumers, and then you have, well, for example, I, I'm being, maybe I'm being too critical, but I really don't like it when they change the name of a church to a Christian center. Have you, have you seen that? Yeah. This is so-and-so Christian center. Or why are they doing that? Well, because it's, they've caved into the urban world. A shopping center. Right? You know, we're out here in the cul-de-sacs and, you know, so you go over here to the eating center and you go over here to the buying center and you go over here to the recreational center. And then when you do your religious thing, you go over to the religious center. And so even, even taking the name church off of the, what, what it is, because why be embarrassed about being a church? Yeah, well, we haven't got quite that far yet. <laughs> well, so uh, the, the more we get into the idea of being religious consumers and the less we understand the body of Christ and the fellowship, the, the, I think the less value we have in our assembly. So it should be real. It should be, we should actually know people. We should care about people. We should care about one another. And we all need the Lord. And we, and we need to somebody saying, hey, what, what's going on? I haven't seen you. Are you okay? You know, be there to pray for you. I saw, I saw a cartoon that was written in a secular paper about that, 
15 years ago, it was after one of these scandals. I don't remember if it was the PTL scandal or the Jimmy Swagger scandal. or You remember the televangelist scandals of the yeah. 80s? Well, they, they ran a cartoon in the paper, and it showed a funeral, and there was this big TV truck, and they had a cord out, and they set a TV set up. In other words, the person died didn't have a real church. They just watched TV, so they had a, so they put the TV out by the graveside for the funeral. Oh my god! And that was in the that was in a Star Tribune, you know. So, you know, maybe the TV church is lacking a few things. Like who's going to do your funeral? I don't think Jimmy Swaggart is going to be there. Yeah, you see, they had the rabbit ears on and. Dearly beloved. <clears throat> All right, cross references. Keith, Romans five one and two, fifth, no, Roman, excuse me, Romans fifteen one and two. Now this is about stimulating one another to love and good deeds. Romans fifteen one and two, and Denise, one Corinthians ten thirty three, um, and Dan, Galatians five thirteen, and Dean, Galatians five twenty two. Where should we go? Let's go back here. Uh, Phyllis, Galatians 6, 1, and Sam, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, Norma, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. That's, let's start with those. That's quite a lot of verses. Okay, uh, Romans 15, 1 and 2. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor, his good, and to his edification. How much uh, exhortation does it take to get us to please ourselves? <laughs> We're pretty good at that. Uh, but uh, there's, it's, a, it's not so certain that we're going to take care of our neighbor. And so we're commanded to do so. 1 Corinthians 10.33 just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Okay, so Paul's concern was others, not in this case even the laws, not just the church, but the laws, that they might be saved. Galatians 5.13 For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Yeah. One another by love. Yeah. So don't allow your liberty to be an occasion for the flesh, but by love serve one another. So that's what Christianity, that's, our, that's what our fellowship is about, serving one another. Galatians 5.22? Uh, 22 and 23. Okay. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Yeah, so that's the that's what it looks like. The fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is truly at work, those things are the result. Faith, hope, love, and so forth. And that's what we have here. That's what we need. Yep, that's what we need. That's the sign of God's work. And those things are nurtured by a valid Christian fellowship and prayer and the Word of God. Yes. It's also nurtured by, by the, the word of God, the gospel, my understanding of the gospel. Because if I understand that I'm unworthy and Christ gives me a free gift, the gratitude for that extends in my giving gifts and my being generous to those around me as well. It just springs out of that. I fail to, to hear and understand that I'm continually 
be refreshed in my understanding of that would result in something that's weaker. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> Having, I mean, it's just it's hard to underestimate the value of God's Word. Partaking of God's Word corporately is a good way to say it. All right? Yes, private Bible reading is a good thing, but we corporately we need to partake of the Word as a means of grace. All right, Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too, lest you too be tempted. Okay, so there's an admonition that if someone falls into a sin, that we try to restore such a one. But being circumspect, realizing we're sinners too. Amen. Right? That's beautiful. Yeah. Because religion stops you when you're down. With Christianity, you can help your brother and he can help you. It's just Amen. the opposite of Amen. religion. Amen. Okay, uh, Sam, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this I pray that love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, Amen. having been filled with the fruit of the righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. There's a passage about discernment. Being able to disprove the things that are excellent. The word prove means put things to the test to determine their nature. People say, well, why are you so picky? People say that. <laughs> why are you so narrow? I think you're kind of narrow, Dan. I'm very narrow. Be so open-minded that your brain's going to fall right Yeah. Okay, uh, Norma, you had 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, and 13. Amen. Increasing in our love for one another. Okay, I have, a, I have another one. Mark, you want to read one? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. And then Mike, uh, Cola Jelly, um, Titus 3, 8. And Scott, 1 John 3, 18. Okay, when you're ready, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Okay, so that's again another exhortation to mutual edification of the body of Christ. Titus 3 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to bring what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Okay. If we, if we believe in God, then we should be careful to do good works according to Titus. 1 John 3.18, Scott. Okay, this is, that's an, an admonition to real love that takes practical action, not just talk. Right? Amen. So that was, again, a sign of God's grace working in a, in a Christian assembly is the type of love they show to one another. All right, now we're going to verse 25, Hebrews 10:25. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is drawing near? The day of the Lord. Yeah, so the day of the Lord is drawing near. Then what should we be doing? 
yeah, we need to get together as Christians and to uh, pray for one another and encourage one another. So Christian assembly is important. It's very, in fact, I think people know that the number one email I've gotten in the last two years, and I don't know how many dozens or hundreds, but it's way up there, is this. This is, I could, I got them in a folder. I got hundreds of these emails. It says this. Basically, I'm looking for a church that preaches the gospel and teach, teaches the word of God. I live in whatever city. Do you know of one? I get that over and over and over. And some of these are coming from major cities. I've had people tell me that they've gone to dozens of churches and they can't find the word of God preached without compromise. And so that shows me that there's a lot of people that are hungry, but they've had the, so to speak, the rug pulled out from under them because their church converted to this new paradigm. I'm writing a book about this. I just finished a chapter on it. I, I, uh, I bought a book, uh, called Transitioning in which the pastor, and he sincerely thinks he's on a mission from God, because he calls himself Nehemiah and everybody that withstands him or Sandbalat, you know, leaders from hell. And his whole purpose is to convert the church to purpose-driven from a Bible church. And the book tells you how to do it. And it's a real eye-opener. Yeah, yeah. The, he, he, he said, well, some of the people in my church were, were told me I wasn't preaching the gospel. Well, of course, because he isn't. Um, but here's the thing. It's laid out step by step by step. First step, to define your vision. This is all secular business talk. Okay, you define your vision. And the vision is got to, you know, I'm going to have a church that people in my community will want to come to. Let me translate that. You, do, you need to find your marketing niche. And you do that by doing a marketing survey of the neighborhood. If you were to go to church, what would you look what kind of a person lives in your area and what, what do they want to see in their religious services? Just like if you were going to plant a restaurant or a shopping center or something else. Now, is the average sinner going to say, yes, uh, I'm glad to answer your question. I want to go to a church where the gospel's preached, where I'm told that I'm a wretched sinner that needs to repent. Well, no, they don't say that. Well, I would like, you know, fun music and I'd like comfort and I, well, I don't know what they say they like. Good donuts. Right. Yeah, don't yeah, don't tell me I need to repent of anything. Well, whatever the case, uh, what what happens is then you get that vision. You find your marketing niche, niche. You you define your vision. Then you find the power brokers in your church. This is right out of this book, sold by PurposeDriven.com. And the power brokers are. Every, he said every church has power brokers. Those are the people that are the movers and shakers that people will listen to. You sell them on your vision. And then once you get the power brokers on your side, then you go to the leaders, the workers, the people that are the key people, and you sell them on your vision. And you do all this groundwork, and nobody else even knows what's going on. They're just sitting there in a pew. They don't realize that you're plotting to totally change the church. And then and it works its way down to finally the last people to know are the congregation. And then, then he has a whole chapter on how to deal with the opposition. And he goes, this comes out of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had his vision. Okay, he's going to rebuild Jerusalem. The opposition were these evil people that didn't want it to happen. Now, there's a big, huge category here 
and that is that this, Nehemiah's vision came from the Bible. God had told Jeremiah that they would go back and rebuild the temple, and God had told Daniel. And so, so they knew that on the authority of God's word that the Jerusalem ought to be rebuilt. Amen. But does this same pastor know on the authority of God's word that his vision of making the church purpose-driven rather than Bible is God's vision? That's the whole disconnect. And so once you believe that it's God's vision, then everybody, even people who are saying, Pastor, I want you to preach the gospel, that person is an evil leader from hell because he's trying to stop you from your vision. And you have to withstand them. And this guy said, 300 people left my church, and I don't care because now I have 2,000. So what happened was 300 Christians left and 2,000 religious seekers, quote-unquote, came. And that's what happened. I just wrote a chapter. It's not going to be published until it's in the book. I just wrote a chapter that explains how that happened. And if you're in one of those churches, you might as well know right now it's never going to go back. It will not go back. Do you know why? Because if if if, if they change back, those 2,000 will get offended. And you can't afford to lose 2,000 because you can't pay your mortgage payment. You can afford to lose 300 and gain 2,000, but you can't lose the 2,000. And so it won't go back. It's gone. It's done. It's, it's a useless to God. Yes, Mike. Yeah, I agree. That it absolutely transgressing that passage in James. should say, if the Lord will. But they're giving you this formula that's basically guaranteed to work if you do it right. Now, if you, if you, if you, if you goof up, it might not work. But if you do it right, it will. Yes. I looked that verse up. It's in my chapter. That's not what it says, though. If you read, if you read, if you read, if you read the passage of Proverbs, that's the King James, but it's not a very good translation. It's a, what is that passage? What's, what's with Proverbs 19? Where is it? Without vision, people perish. First one that finds it gets a gold star for Sunday school. <laughs> Got to have a little fun here. All right. For Proverbs something or another. I thought I was 19 or thereabouts. I just was writing about them. But I, this is a good example of how, why you should actually look things up. Because once you do, you realize it doesn't say. It is not a talk about vision in the sense of, um, in the Bible, it's not talking about in a business sense. It's talking about revelation from God that is Scripture. What's to say? Okay. 29.18? Okay, I found it. That's it. 29.18. Gold star. No. Get a man. <laughs> All right. Proverbs 29.18. Look at this. This will, If you look at it, so one of the things to know about Hebrew poetry, which is Proverbs, Psalms, you know, which are, which are Hebrew poetry, their favorite construction was parallelisms. And sometimes it's a synonymous parallelism, and sometimes it's an antithetical one. This is an antithetical one. And looking at the second part of the parallel shows you what the first one means if you're uncertain about the first one. Notice this. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is the one who keeps the law. The the phrase vision and law are in parallel construction. And the word vision there 
means uh, revelation. In other words, if God's prophets are not speaking authoritatively for God, which they're the lawgiver, I mean, they, 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 they uphold the law, I should say, Moses is the lawgiver. So if they're not having this authoritative word from God, the people are unrestrained. But the opposite of that would be happy is the one who keeps the law. So the opposite of, so the vision, no, the opposite of no vision is keeping the law. So it's not talking about having an idea in your mind that you hope you can actualize in the future. And so in this chapter I wrote, I pointed those things out and I used this verse, said that this is a category error. It's like, it's equivocating is the technical term for it. It's like saying, uh, so what's an illustration of equivocating? Where you have the same word, but it means two different things, but you, but you don't know that it means two different things. What was the one? I, I have one in my footnote. Keith saw it. Um, oh, it has something about the court. Legal action. They used it in two different ways. Yeah. Okay. I have an answer to that in Proverbs 19.21. There are many devices <laughs> they, that's the opposite of the idea of the vision. There are, there are many devices of man's heart, but God's counsel is dead. So this idea that vision is getting your concept of the future that you would want to actualize, cast, they call it vision casting. I was taught this at seminary. They have classes that teach you how to do this. And this one guy was coming in talking about vision casting, and he was successful because he had taken a church from 200 to 2,000, so he was the expert. And he says, this is like Bill Gates visualizing the, the Windows operating system. But that's not, the, the, the Bible knows nothing of that sort of vision. A vision is an authoritative word from God, not plans in my, a man's mind. Yes. Right. Keep doing this, he's going to get you. That was their vision. That was the vision, getting them back to the what's that? That's that's why it says if there's no vision, the people are unrestrained. Nobody's holding them to the to the law. So it doesn't have anything to do with Bill Gates dreaming up Windows. And besides that, he didn't dream it up. He stole it from Mac. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all Windows is is Mac for DOS. Okay. All right. Yes. Exactly. It's the total opposite. So, so here's... Yeah, that's the... Uh, uh, Denise, that's a, that's a very astute observation. The irony is, under the guise of vision, they remove God's vision, which is the Word, that, that keeps people from being unrestrained, and brings in man's vision, which is his hopes for the future, his dreams. My own imagination. Yeah. Yeah, and in, 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 in that chapter I wrote, I quoted that thing in Jeremiah, said the false prophets are speaking from their own imagination. Amen. So here we have the definition of a false prophet. I get my imagination. I see in my mind on the corner of 24th and Nicollet a thousand people clamoring to come to church. 
And, 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 and then I go to, to the movers and power breaker, brokers and sell them on the idea. And of course, I've got to have some plan about how I'm going to make that happen. And uh, so, I mean, I don't know what would make that happen. I have no clue. That's probably why I have no vision. So I just, all I do is preach the word. I don't know anything better. Uh, and then, and then, but that's not at all what the Bible's talking about. And that's my imagination. And that's the definition of a false prophet in, the, in Jeremiah. Isn't that ironic? And so you go to seminary and you take a class on how to be a false prophet. Apparently Noah failed, right, with his vision. <laughs> they drowned, and he, their vision, their vision of the world at the time was the opposite of Noah's and the word of God. And ain't souls were saved yeah. by water. They had a vision, those billions of people, but it was a vision that led them to be drowned. Well, you know, the only vision that matters is God's authoritative Amen. revelation. His and that's found in the scripture. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we just have our own imagination. Uh, Ryan and then yeah. Troy. Well, I find another irony is, is this whole pilot doing the same thing as Jesus God. I think the irony is, it's, 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 you know, it's the, the imagery is that of fishing, you know, vision casting. You're casting your vision out and hopefully drag people in. Well, it's not what Jesus meant when he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. <laughs> they should be gospel preachers, not vision casters. Is, this is something that's replacing what, what God has ordained and as the apostles did, fishing men through the gospel, not through our own. Amen. Yeah, great. Amen. And so, and selling people on your vision, getting them excited about it, getting willing to work and commit and do all these things, <clears throat> certainly is a great marketing strategy, and I'm sure that's the way successful corporations operate. But it's not God's plan for the church. No. Yes. A year ago, a granddaughter and her husband started a new business called Social. It's a new way of marketing food. Anyway, they hired one of these. Seller brokers yeah. who makes your target. What is your goal? And then they decided it had to be people, couples between 25 and 40, no children, were living in an apartment in a rushy life. And uh, she said, Grandma, you don't qualify. We wouldn't send any ads to you. And I don't qualify. I've got kids. And so it's this certain group that they yeah. want. And the church is doing the same thing. Yes, that, 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 there's a whole chapter in this book I read on that. And they said that if you do, if you don't have a target market niche, you're going to fail. And so you got to decide what's your market niche. Who who's Saddleback Sam? Yeah, no, there's a whole there's a picture of him in the book. Well, they can do that with their business, but that's not the church. The church is to preach the gospel to all people. Yes.